Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Good afternoon. Uh, today on the podcast, uh, my guest is Jody Buckman. Uh, Jody has been uh, practicing law for over 20 years, concentrating in business, real estate, and bankruptcy. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jody. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So uh, tell us, why, why did you decide to pursue a career uh, being an attorney? Sure. Well, my father is an attorney. He okay. is a personal injury and medical malpractice attorney in Baltimore. And I grew up watching him get ready for depositions in the basement and get ready for trials and talk to clients on the phone. And I was very curious about what he was doing. I also recall reading To Kill a Mockingbird when mm. I was in middle school. And that it had a huge effect on me and just furthered my interest in the law. I knew I was going to law school from the time I was in middle school. Wow. Based on those two major factors. That, that's, that's pretty amazing that, that at that point in time in your life, you, you know, you just, you, you knew what your, what your career was uh, that you wanted to do and your goals there. Um, how, I guess, kind of walk us through a little bit of, of the steps that you did to get where you're at now. Sure. I, when I graduated, I went to McDonough School in Owings Mills. When I graduated, I went to Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. And one advantage when you know you want to go to law school early is that you can really major in whatever you're interested in in college. It doesn't, there's no pre-law major requirement. So I majored in international relations and Spanish. And for a while there debated doing some type of policy law as a result of having Spanish, but uh, decided not to go that route. And after Bucknell, I went to Maryland Law School, which is uh, in downtown Baltimore, mm -hmm. with an open mind on what type of law I wanted to practice. I had originally thought I wanted to do the same type of law as my father. My father has an excellent and impeccable reputation and to tell you the truth, it, by the end of law school, I realized I did not want to do the type of law that he did because I didn't want to always be in his shadow and be compared to him. And I thought that I would pursue something completely different. So when I was a second year in law school, I applied for a summer associate position at was what was what that time was Piper and Marbury, which is the largest firm in Baltimore. I worked there as a summer associate and then also at the same time applied for a judicial clerkship to get to know the judges and to get to know how the system works from the judicial side before practicing on the, on the lawyer side. And I spent a year clerking for uh, Judge Joseph Murphy, who was then the chief judge of the Court of Special Appeals. Okay. And I spent a year with him. And then after my clerkship, I went back to what was now Piper Rudnick and spent the next 16 and a half years there. It, it morphed names many times, but it's now known as DLA Piper. And I practiced in the areas of bankruptcy, business litigation, and real estate litigation. 
And from there, I left after 16 and a half years and went to get Parton Smith as a partner in their litigation slash bankruptcy department. I stayed there about a year. And since then, I've spent the last two and a half years at Silverman Thompson, Slepkin and White doing business litigation, bankruptcy, and real estate litigation. Gotcha. So going through all of this process and things like that, what are some of the common mistakes, and we can take it you know, each one at a time, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see people make when, uh, you know, when, when they're going into business? I think the most common mistake you see is that there's a lack of organization in the process and in the documents. Okay. A company will, or partners that are, that are deciding to open up a company will, they will spend time trying to decide whether to be an S corp or an LLC or a partnership. And they will do some research though. Some of the times I've found that they, they use legalzoom.com for their, <laughs> their research and for their documents. And, and that leads to, that leads to issues right. down the road. I, I, I've, I've noticed over the years, you know, somebody will come to us after they, you know, form their company and tell me that they're in business and so forth. And then, we asked for the for the legal documents and yes they do have where they incorporated in whatever state and they have their federal id number but when we ask them for their operating agreement or partnership agreement or whatever they look at me with just a blank stare um so i find that that on my side i find that that's one of the big things that it's missing um you know when we deal with people and setting up businesses what about people that get into the, the real estate investment and things like that? What do you, what do you see some of the mistakes that, that people are making then? Well, a, a common mistake that I see is if someone rushes quickly into a real estate investment, they may not get title insurance or enough title insurance, and they may not... Um, do their due diligence with respect to the real estate itself. There could be latent defects with the property. There could be environmental issues, things of that nature. I, there's a, there's a lack of some due diligence sometimes on the property and then a, and then some remorse afterwards. Right. Right. Do you find um, many people get, you know, getting into real estate investment wise, um, you know, thinking that they're just going to be the, the, the next Donald Trump of the world where they're going to have all of these, you know, real estate deals and make a ton of money off of them and then find out after the fact that, um, that, there, that there's a lot more liability to it than they, than they thought? I find that, that people, when they invest in real estate, it's, it's, almost, it's almost akin to when a hard money lender makes a loan secured by real estate. Right. They look at the value of the property based on an appraisal and then they look at the loan amount and they decide that based on whatever that differential is, they're going to, it's a moneymaker. They're going to do some construction, flip it, turn it over. But they, it, a lot of times they don't realize that there are, there are a lot of issues out there that they haven't looked at. It's not just the value. We're not living in the pre 2008 Lehman territory where you could, where you could make a loan or make an investment based solely on the value of the property and uh, whatever loan amount you have. 
Right. Um, now, mo moving on to the to the bankruptcy side, what what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, people make um, when they decide to, to claim bankruptcy? A lot of the times, it's a business that grows way too fast, okay. doesn't have the right protections in place, or a company that maybe got um, in trouble with a big loan, and then they tried to solve that problem with a series of small loans, whether they be payday loans or merchant cash advance receivable type loans, and then they're all of a sudden they're completely underwater. A lot of times though, it really has to do with a loan going into default or a litigation being filed against them, against the company that, that could put the company in jeopardy, things of that nature. Right. What about um, companies that, that get behind in you know, payroll taxes or corporate taxes, and then they want to claim bankruptcy. Um, is that something that's, that's advisable or, um, you know, do you tend to, to tell the owners to kind of stay away from that? Well, I, I mostly, I represent creditors in bankruptcy. I don't file debtor cases, but I would okay. say that if you're filing to avoid tax problems, it's not a very good reason to file because you're most likely, if not definitely, going to have to still pay those taxes. Right. So from, a, from the standpoint of, you know, any of, the, any of the, the, the three specialties that you have, can you give us some, some reasons why it's good to use someone, a professional like you, to help through the process? I think the main thing is, on the one hand, organizing all your documents and making sure they're in the right place and that you have good agreements and that all those agreements are stored somewhere where you can easily find them and, and keep track of them. And then on the second hand, it's knowing what your rights and obligations are under those agreements. Okay. What, um, what are some of the, the biggest challenges uh, that you're facing right now? As a lawyer or with the, with the clients? Uh, both. As a lawyer, it, we're still busy. We still have the work. There are, obviously there are no in-person hearings mm -hmm. and trials, especially jury trials. Judges and courts have started holding hearings telephonically or by Zoom. And mm -hmm. it's actually going pretty well. Depositions are taking place by Zoom. And we're communicating with clients by Zoom or on the phone. Because under the Maryland stay-at-home emergency, we were considered an essential business. We never closed. Right. Even when we had many people working at home, we had people in the office that were there to support and assist. Right. Now, have you, so during this process, I mean, have you found it um, uh, just everything with, with the courts and, and judicial system had just been slowed down? Do you see that, that this is going to, to catch back up soon? What do you see with that? On the civil side, it's been slowed down immensely. In several, I'm also admitted in Virginia, and in Virginia, a lot of the courts issued orders staying limitations deadlines, staying response deadlines until after the, after the court reopens at a certain phase. It, and really, it's, it's difficult because every court does something different, so you really need to stay on top right. of, 
of what's going on in, in the jurisdictions in which you practice, but things are definitely slow. And, and because they're, when trials start again, they're most likely going to start with criminal trials because you have constitutional issues like cruel and unusual punishment and things of that nature, that right to a speedy trial that you don't necessarily have on the civil side. And so trials are going to be real slow. And so while you can do everything you would normally do in a case, you can file your motions and you can take discovery. The actual trial itself, I, I don't think anyone knows when that, when that's going to take place. What do you think? I mean, do you think that once they do start taking place again, do you think they're going to be in person or do you think that they're going to be some type of a, a Zoom or other type of uh, virtual uh, case? I can't imagine a trial not being in person. Okay. Everything else I think you could do by Zoom or by phone, but uh, where you have so many exhibits and you have potentially a jury. Right which is probably even further off than starting up a regular trial, a judge trial is a jury trial. Right. Okay. What are um, some of the questions that you're, that you wish that clients were to ask you that they're not asking you? Well, to go back to one of your points, if a client, a client will rarely call and say, I'm setting up a business. I want your help. We usually get calls, I've set up a business, I'm in dispute with my partner and we don't know what to do. Right. Um, but if they were to call to set up the business, then you know, asking the question of what type of business are you setting up? What are the rights and obligations of the partners, the investors, and um, you want a really strong operating agreement if it's an LLC and bylaws if it's an S Corp, things of that nature. If you could do that from the outset, it would, it would take you a long way. But most of the time, if not all of the time, when we see cases, it's, it's after a dispute has arisen and whatever documents there are, if there are any, are already in place. Right. So the, what, are, what are some of the biggest fears that your clients have or potential clients have um, that you're able to alleviate for them uh, fairly quickly? It depends on the type of matter, but if, if for say you, it's a business that is an LLC and there's some infighting going on between partners, organizing all the documents, getting all the documents together. If the LLC is just simply majorly disorganized because they, they started and then they exploded, the right. business just exploded and, and you've got a business of really capable people running it but they're really salespeople. They're not business people. So they don't have the right documents in place. They probably have most, if not all of their agreements contained in emails, not even stored in the right place. So for example, if they own the real property, documents relating to that, if they lease the real property, documents relating to that, relationships with their vendors, the contracts are you know, in several emails. Right putting it all together in a, in an organized package is what we would try to do in that situation. Right. So the, uh, you know, keep going back to the same thing. It's like, you know, kind of like ask the questions ahead of time and, and be organized and make sure that, that you have, have the documents, um, you know, between you and you and your partners and you and your vendors. Sounds like absolutely something really it, it, important. Save, save yourself trouble later by spending a few dollars on the front end. 
if you spend $2,500 to $5,000 on the front end to get the right agreement in place, it could save you hundreds of thousands of dollars on the back end if litigation ensues. Right, right. So can you speak about, um, you know, someone piercing the corporate veil and what that means? Sure. In, in Maryland, piercing the corporate veil is a way to get at the owners of the company by piercing the so-called corporate shield of whatever corporate entity they own. And in Maryland, in order to get to the owners of the company, you need to prove actual fraud. Okay. The language of, of the piercing of the corporate veil statutes say that you can pierce the corporate veil to, um, for fraud or if there's some type of inequity. But the courts, in Maryland at least, have held that you actually have to show fraud to get at the owners of a company. Okay. So it's not just if I, if my, um, uh, I haven't filed my personal property return, so I'm not in good standing with the state of Maryland. So that doesn't automatically cause the uh, piercing of the corporate veil or would that? Well, that, it depends on what taxes were owed and, and what the rules were governing those taxes. But if it was something like you didn't pay vendors or you didn't pay the loan, unless you guaranteed the loan, which is a separate issue, but right. um, it would be more for situations like that. Okay. If there's allegations of, and we're seeing a lot of cases right now where there are allegations of trade secrets and trade secrets being sold or used by one company, used by say company A owns the trade secrets, company B somehow gets the trade secrets and uses it to their advantage. Okay. And then A company A sues company B. We're seeing a lot of those cases. Wow, that's I, you know, that that's one of those ones that you know I, I haven't run across it at all. But it's kind of interesting that that's something that is becoming more and more prevalent right now. It is. Now, are these like the trade secrets stuff like that? Are these things that are that are you know copyrighted or or you know trademarked or anything like that? Trade secrets. Um, is that what this is or? To a certain degree, but plaintiffs have taken the term trade secrets and sort of exploded its definition. So typically you would think of a trade secret as a formula, a copyrighted right. trademark, things of that nature. But plaintiffs are now using the term trade secrets to also cover their pricing information, their customer lists, mm. things of that nature. Okay. So that's, that's, is, is that more from a, uh, an employee taking that information and going someplace else with it or typically. is it just flat out somehow or another they found out about this stuff? Typically it's an employee. Okay. So uh, can you tell us about, um, you know, a, a, we say a recent case that you've had and kind of um, how, how you stepped through that process um, and kind of what the outcome was without, obviously without mentioning any names or anything. I'm just thinking of one where that would be interesting enough right. for the listeners that right. I, you wouldn't also already know the case if you looked it up. But it, we've, um, it, it really sort of, this jumps outside business law. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure if you, if you want me to go there, but um, we, have a, we have a couple of cases where we, um, 
I'll strike that. I'll, I'll stick with the business law side. Okay. If you if you stick with the the business law side or the real estate investment side, I'm trying okay. to think of a of a good sure. example. But let let me just do sort of a generic example because okay. um, if and and it goes back to the companies. These are people that are members of an LLC that are fighting about who has, who has the rights, who has the obligations, who owns X shares, who owns Y shares. Can partner A kick partner B out of the company, both divesting him of the shares and, and you know, potentially divesting him of being on the board, things of that nature. And these cases are interesting because they're, they're taken very personal by the clients mm -hmm. as opposed to sometimes if you represent a rep of a large organization, it's more business as usual, but these are, these are individual people. This is their livelihood. This is their business. This was usually it was a relationship between them and a family member or them and a close friend that got into business together. And it not only has the business relations fallen apart, but their personal relationship has fallen apart. And so they take that very seriously. And, and very personally. From a legal side, it's really a methodical exercise. It's a, what documents do you have that show who the owners are, what the relationships are with, um, between the owners, are there investors, what, what are your rights and obligations? So we, we will typically look at the operating agreement, analyze it to the nth degree by looking at every provision and seeing what if we represent partner A that wants to kick out partner B, then we would look at it from that perspective. What, what possible ways are there to do this? And can you do it? Right. And then it, on the flip side, if we represent somebody that is being ousted or is attempting to be ousted from the company, we would analyze the operating agreement and the law from that perspective. But in these types of cases, the operating agreement is gold. And so if, you can't really use outside evidence to say, well, this was really our intent with section B. We didn't mean what it said. It really meant this. Well, you know, courts aren't going to do that. Courts are going to look at the agreement and determine what the rights are of the parties. So it sounds, so it really sounds like, uh, you know, again, this goes back to, to making sure you organize right and you, you, you do your work up front is that from what you're saying is the operating agreement or, or the bylaws is really what's going to dictate what happens. And that's kind of your roadmap um, for omitting or kicking out or doing anything, um, you know, with owners of the company. Right. And, and so if you spend the money before the company set up, the minimal amount you would have to pay versus the, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars you could end up paying to have experts on each side testifying about what a provision means and going into specific accounting and accounting details of every move of the company, trying to organize all the records of the company. I mean, all these things, if, if you just have a good business plan at the outset and hire somebody to look at your documents or put together your documents, it can save you it can save your company, really, right. before it even starts. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you know, just from, a, you know, again, going back, it's just, 
you know, let's make sure that that all of our our wants and um, what we believe our agreement is is out in writing. So later on, when something happens, uh, we're we're all protected. Um, right, and the, you know, the the same can be true for looking at a lease before mm -hmm. a lease is signed. The same thing can be said for looking at loan documents before loan documents are signed. Right. The same thing can be said for looking through real estate documents before those are signed. I mean. More so the issue of, of the putting of the business together and the organization, I would say that's really paramount, but there's good reason to look at all those types of documents before they're signed and then you can't do anything about what you've signed. Right. So, so again, and, and part of this keeps going back to make sure you have a professional in your corner, you know, to, to help you to make sure that you know, like you're saying, the leases are read ahead of time. So you understand what they say, you know, your partnership agreement or, or operating agreement is, is written out the way that, that you want with everything. Um, so it just, it, a lot of due diligence needs to be done ahead of time is, is really what, yes. what I keep hearing from you. And it kind of seems like that's, that's, you know, something that's, that's very important to make sure we do when, when we get into these transactions. And to have an accountant too, if you're forming a company on the, because a lot of lawyers including myself are not experts in the tax code. So, right. you know, having an accountant there to, um, to make sure that the documents make sense from an accounting perspective and advise on tax consequences or having a tax lawyer advise on tax consequences right. Right. is another, is another item to check on your to-do list. Right. And that's, you know, Going back, that's kind of how I try to tell people, you know, when, when they come into us, it's like, you know, look, I'll, I'll be your quarterback for you. And you can have you've got to have many people on your team, you know, attorneys and, um, you know, obviously bookkeepers and uh, CPAs. And depending on what other uh, type of entity you are, depending on the, the other type of professionals, you know, that you need to have um, that, that are on your team, because, not one of us is going to know everything. Um, you need to have the different people that are experts in, in their professional areas. Um, what is, over your, you know, your years of doing this, what is something important that, that you have learned um, you know, that you would like to share with the listeners and, and things that, that you've done from the, from the attorney side of things? Well, I'll say this. Sometimes you read a document and as a young lawyer, you would say, oh, we win 100%. This is 100% in favor of us. And you get into litigation and you have discovery back and forth. Things still look great. You're overconfident. You really think you're going to win. The message to send to people is unpredictability. Anytime you go before a judge, anytime you go before a jury, anything can happen. And so that's why 97, 97, whatever it is, percent of all cases settle is because when you go before the judge, I mean, he can, if, if you claim you're owed a hundred thousand and the other side says, no, you're only owed 50,000, it would, it would not be unusual for a judge to come in and say 75,000, mm -hmm. you know, something neither party asked for, right. You know, or, or to, you know, decide what, decide the case based on what's fair and equitable, not necessarily, 
your the legal point, the intricate legal point that you thought you had won from the time you read the first document in the case. Right. And so it's it's very unpredictable. And so the purpose of litigation is really to go through and, and build your case, but also to learn your case's weaknesses so that you can evaluate whether or not this is something that should go to trial or if this is something that should be settled or if this is something that can be resolved by a motion filed before trial. So, yeah, so it, it, it sounds like, you, you, you know, like a lot of things, you never know what's going to happen until it happens. Right. Um, so what, um, what are some of the um, pain points uh, that your clients have um, and how, how do you meet those? What do you mean by? So, um, you know, from like right now, because everything is, is moving so slow, um, you know, in, in the legal process and stuff like that, um, you know, and I'm going to assume with, with a lot of the, the civil cases of, of people trying to um, collect money or be able to, you know, continue to operate their business or things like that. Are you running into any of that right now? And is there is there a way to alleviate that? Or is it just unfortunately right now, there, there's not a whole lot that, that can be done? Yeah, I mean, that depends. I, you know, there are definitely cases where the other side's dragging and they're delaying on purpose and they're using the COVID restrictions and things of that nature to push every deadline back as far as they possibly can to drag the case out. That's right. definitely going on. And there's really nothing you can do about it. Right. Um, if, if it's timely, maybe there's a motion you can file to try to advance the case. But, you know, some of these courts have extended deadlines for responding to motions. And some courts have, are not even holding motions hearings at all. And so it, you really have to be patient as a litigant right now in trying to get your, your case adjudicated. And now there are ways you can solve that if, if both parties are agreeable, like a mediation or an arbitration. Okay. Arbitrations, um, in fact, an arbitration is being conducted in the next room to where I'm sitting right now by Zoom. And, okay. um, and mediations can be done by Zoom. And so you can, you can still settle cases and you can still um, resolve them through arbitration as opposed to a trial. But getting in court for your motion, getting in court for your trial, that right now is, is totally up in the air. So what, what does the um, ideal client for you look like? It's interesting because when you say you do business law, I, I think people think it's a lot smaller than it is. My practice is really expansive in that it's not just one type of client. It's really any client that has a business issue whatsoever. Okay. It could be as small as I'm helping a couple couples right now that are, are having trouble with their wedding deposits and their wedding venues where they've tried to, um, they've reserved a, you know, the wedding of their dreams and now nobody can come and everyone has to wear masks and the right. guest list is scraped down. Um, you know, it could be as small as that to, to representing lenders in, or, or borrowers and guarantors in, in multi-million dollar loans, um, representing insureds under title insurance policies to fix title defects. 
okay. not necessarily money involved that way. Um, and then representing a creditor who's owed money from a debtor in bankruptcy, whether it be a lease, whether it be a vendor relationship, whether it be a loan, things right. of that nature. It really runs the gamut when you do business law, at least at our firm. Mm-hmm. Our business group really handles, does a really good job of handling the smallest issue to the biggest issue. Like, for example, in our business group, we represent uh, in a class action case, NFL players that are suing the NFL for the opioid culture in, mm. amongst NFL teams. Okay. And, and that's, you know, that's probably on the bigger end of cases. And then you've got, you know, helping, helping Mr. And Mrs. Smith get the wedding of their dreams. So it, it can really run the gamut. And then that's what makes it exciting and fun is that, I mean, it, to a certain extent, no two cases are ever the same, right. but when you, when you really expand what you do within the, the business realm, then, um, then really no cases is like another. Right. Right. It's, it definitely sounds great that it's, you know, you got a, you got a huge variety of things that you get to do. Um, so like you said, it's, it's, you know, even though with COVID and everything else, lots of times we feel like it's, you know, groundhog day, same thing over and over, but you know, with what you're doing, you're, you're really not, I mean, some of the things may be, but you're, you're, you're de- really dealing with different stuff. So if somebody wanted, if one of our listeners wants to, you know, to employ you to, to do work for them and so forth, how, how would they uh, reach out to you? How did they get in touch with you? Email, phone. Okay. What's, can you give us your, you know, email address for them to, to reach out to you, phone number for them to reach out to you? Sure. Phone number is uh, 410-385-2225. And just ask for Jody Buckman. And then my email address is jbuckman at silvermanthompson.com. Today uh, on our show, our guest has been Jody Buckman. Uh, Jody, I really appreciate your time today and all of your insight. Absolutely. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.